Well, good morning and welcome to Bridgewater. So glad to have you here. If I've not gotten a chance to meet you yet, my name is Tim and I'm one of the pastors. And uh, we are excited. Um, you know, it's fun to lead with humor and cute stories about bats or what my kids did last week, but today is not going to be one of those days, you know, because we need to talk about some delicate subjects, and there's two reasons for that. One, because you experience them, and two, because the Bible addresses them. In Second Samuel chapter 13, we have one of the most horrible, horrific stories in the Bible. In fact, I don't even want to preach on it or read it or talk about it because it is so horrific. You see, King David has multiple wives, and with those women, he has multiple children, and one of those kids is named Amnon. And Amnon is a wicked, evil human being. And he is in love with his stepsister, Tamar. I mean, when you're in love with your sister, that's, that's pretty gross, okay? And he is in love with her. And because he is evil, because he is wicked, he has devised a plan to lure him to his room and to, to, her, to his room. And so he, she, he pretends to be sick, and he asks Tamar to make him some food, and he asks Tamar to feed him this food. And while she was there, he takes advantage of his sister. And this is a story about a young lady who undergoes some abuse, trauma, and it is an assault. The wickedness and evil that Tamar experiences is absolutely horrible. And he forces her to do things that nobody should ever be forced to do. And our world is profoundly broken. And the Bible understands that. And so the Bible addresses things like that. Even though we don't want to hear stories like this or see stories like that, I believe that the Bible has at least one of these stories in Scripture so that victims of abuse and assault can know that they are not alone. And so God has made sure to have at least one of these stories. And, and in, in God's Scripture, he says that abuse and assault is evil and wicked. The statistics say that one in four women and one in six men will undergo similar assault and abuse like Tamar. Means in a church this size, we probably have several individuals who have gone through similar situations. And I just want to take a moment to talk to the Tamars in the room and say, I am sorry that that's happened to you. One of the reasons this story is here is to say, it's not your fault. Don't believe the lies that your abuser told you. Don't believe that you are the problem. Don't believe that you are damaged goods, no longer good for anything other than abuse. So to the Tamar in the room, I'm sorry. It is evil and cruel and wicked, and God hates it, and I'm sorry that it happened. Fast forward a bit. Her brother Absalom finds out about the assault, and he is furious. He's angry about what has happened, and he takes a moment to patiently plan out over two years to kill Tamar's attacker, which is his brother, Amnon. And 
as a father, David, we heard about this last week, David did nothing. As a father and a king who could have done something, was furious, but did nothing. And maybe you would, you would say, like, David, why, why don't you do anything? Just do something. And maybe David would say, well, who am I to judge? Maybe David was embarrassed. Maybe David was ashamed of his own example with Bathsheba. I have no idea what was going on in his mind. But David did nothing. And Absalom sees that his dad does nothing. And he is angry and he is mad and he resents his dad for all of that. When evil has taken place against you or somebody that you know, probably the worst thing you could do is nothing. For the rest of her life, at least in that culture, in that culture, Tamar would have been seen as a second-class person. In that culture, it would be likely that nobody would have wanted to marry her. In that culture, she would not have been able to have her own family. In that culture, her life would have been ruined. And her dad, the king, did nothing. And Absalom sees all of that, hears all of that, and he is angry and he resents him. So what do you do when people fail you? What do you do when people fail you or hurt you in some way? That is the question that we're going to wrestle with today. That you've been wronged, you've been sinned against, you've been betrayed. And we've, we've all been there, haven't we? Maybe it was a friend or it was a family member. They, they lied about you. They betrayed you. They gossiped about you. Maybe it was a boss that was harsh to you or belittled you. What do you do when you've been wronged or sinned against or harmed? What do you do when people fail you or hurt you in some way? So although not everyone has undergone what Tamar experienced, we've all been wronged. We've all been hurt. We've all been sinned against. And God has help and answers for even the most difficult cases and situations. So if you have your Bibles, go to 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the verse on the screen behind me. But in 2 Samuel chapter 15, Absalom has begun to plot, right? He is extremely patient. He spends two years plotting revenge against Amnon, against Tamar's attacker, Amnon. And then he's going to spend the next four years plotting out and planning against his father, David, because he is bent on revenge. There is a massive gulf between Absalom and David, and David calls Absalom in after he has murdered his, his son. He goes away for three years, comes back. David calls him in. They meet together. They try to reconcile. At the end of that conversation, David kisses his son, Absalom, and everything is good, right? Well, let's see what happens next. 2 Samuel chapter 15, start reading in verse 1. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand up by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came within a, with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, 
If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or a case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. Absalom wants to be king. So what does he do? The first thing he does is he goes out and he gets a chariot. I mean, Absalom, you're in Jerusalem. What do you need a chariot for? Where are you going with a chariot? He's probably thinking, you know what? I would look good in a chariot. I should get a chariot. Don't you think I should get a chariot? Yes, Absalom, you should get a chariot. What color should I get? Gold, red, blue, standard brown, camo. What color? You know what would go good with a chariot? A bunch of horses. I need a bunch of horses to ride around in style. Absalom is building his brand. He's looking to establish style. He's looking for everybody to know that he is somebody. But you know what else I need? Not just the chariot, not just horses, but I need 50 men to run out in front of the chariot and let everybody know I am here. Here comes Absalom. This guy is so stuck on himself that he thinks that he needs to ride in style, be the man, look the part. Hey, one day I'm going to be king. If you're going to be king, like you've got to ride in style. You've got to look like the king. You've got to act like the king. I mean, a king's got a king. And so he goes out, gets all of this stuff, stations himself right by the city gate as people would line up to bring their grievances, their complaints, their yeah buts. And there he is with his chariot and his horses and his entourage. And he's meeting everybody. But it's interesting because when Israel decided that they wanted a king, that they wanted to be like all of the other nations, God was supposed to be their king. God was their king. And they wanted a king like all of the other nations. And so they started asking. They started pleading. They started requesting, hey, we want a king. We want a king. Give us a king. And God says to Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, in verse 11, he says, all right, you want a king? You want to be like all the other nations? This is what a king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Fine, you want a king? You're going to get a king. And guess what? When you get a king, it's not going to be all that. He's going to take your sons and your daughters and make them work and make them serve and make them cook and make them bake and serve you, serve the king. And he's going to have a chariot and horses and you have people run out in front of that. And God said, you want a king? This is what's going to happen. I'm supposed to be your king. Israel says, no, 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 that's not going to happen. No way is that going to happen. And so God allows them to pick Saul. He looks the part, plays the part. His life unravels. Then God anoints David as the king, and he's a strong warrior. He's an amazing guy. He has a heart after God. He's doing incredible things, and then his life just starts to unravel. And now we see Absalom is rising up, and what does he do? He wants to be the king, and he's getting chariots and horses and men to run out in front of the chariots. God said, this is going to be what happens. 
but Absalom wants to be somebody. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, trust, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Absalom, you have a choice. Are you going to trust and follow God, the king of kings, or are you going to trust in yourself? But Absalom is bent on building a brand, building his own style, building his own image. So people begin to see him. Here comes Absalom. And look at that sweet chariot and those horses and those people running out in front of him and telling everybody, here comes Absalom. And there he is, stationed by the front gate as people line up with their complaints and their yeah buts. And it's interesting because He's spending two years planning the revenge on Tamar's attacker, and now he's spending four years. He's setting up all of the chess pieces on the board, planning all of his little moves. Eugene Merrill says, Absalom's first move to achieve his purposes of revenge was to make himself conveniently available. So they line up, and it just so happens, Absalom is there. You've got a complaint you got a yeah, but, you've got a grievance to file. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I wish somebody was here to listen to you. I would love to hear. If only I was the judge. If only I could do something, I would make sure everything was taken care of. He's schmoozing everybody. I mean, he is a world-class politician, loving the people fixing them up and having them love him. And so he is bent on seeking revenge. And this is that first puzzle piece. He was bent on evening the score when Tamar was attacked. I'll take care of that. I'll make sure all that goes away. And he took care of Amnon, and Amnon went away. And David His father upset him, made him angry for doing nothing. He said, you know what? I'll take care of this. I'm going to even the scoreboard. I'm going to be king. I'm going to take over. And this is what he does. And so when you've been hurt, when you've been wronged, when you've been sinned against, when things haven't gone your way, when people have taken advantage of you or betrayed you, what do you do? Option number one is revenge. You pay them back. You get them back. You give them the cold shoulder, you freeze them out, you put them in the emotional penalty box, and you give them what's coming. Boom. It's there. They earned it. They had it coming. Option number two, you could cultivate an attitude of forgiveness. That attitude of forgiveness is is this readiness to forgive. It's a posture of forgiveness. I'm preparing my heart. I'm being ready The Bible teaches that we should forgive as Christ forgave, that we should be ready, we should be full of grace, we should do it quickly. But before that really comes an attitude or readiness to forgive. You're preparing your heart for that forgiveness. It's not a a therapeutic make you feel good, hey, let's just forgive everybody, never deal with problems, never deal with sin. But it's, no, we're going to have a conversation. We're going to work on reconciliation. And that's what Absalom should have done. He should have gone and had a conversation with David, but instead he decides, I'm going to make him pay. I'm going to seek out revenge. 
And the way that Christ forgives us is we come to Jesus and we acknowledge that we've sinned. We confess our sin. We ask for forgiveness and he makes that forgiveness possible. Because he died on the cross and he paid for all of our sins. And so that attitude of forgiveness then turns into that transaction of forgiveness. And that transaction of forgiveness is this threefold promise. It looks like this. Number one, a promise, I won't bring it up to you. I promise I'm not going to bring it up to others, not even as a prayer request. And I promise I'm not going to bring it up to myself. But it starts with that attitude of forgiveness. And Jesus says, we ought to be forgiving people, but it starts with going and having a conversation, starting the process of working towards reconciliation. It doesn't mean all the consequences are removed. In fact, consequences are a part of life. There's good consequences and bad consequences for all the choices we make. So what do I do if they don't repent? What do I do if they're not sorry? What do, what do I do I can't find them. They live on the other side of the country. They live on the other side of the globe or they've already passed away or, or, or they're, they're in prison. I have no idea where they are. What do I do then? A conversation is not possible. One, I would say adopt the mind of Christ. Develop a forgiving attitude. I would say uh, follow the instructions of Romans 12. Romans 12 talk about not being bitter and overcoming evil with good. And Romans 12 talks about trusting God. Let him be the avenger. It's not doing nothing, but I can't necessarily have a conversation with him. So what do I do then? It's, it begins with cultivating an attitude and a readiness of forgiveness. Absalom should have gone to David. He should have had a conversation. He should have said, Dad, Tell me about why. Explain what happened. Dad, this makes me really angry. Dad, I wish you would have done, but he doesn't. He says, I'm going to settle the score right now. So what do you do? Do you choose to take revenge? Do you choose to pay them back? Here's what you could do. One, you could choose forgiveness over revenge. Choose to cultivate an attitude of forgiveness, a readiness a posture of forgiveness. Absalom's been working four years playing the long game to set all of the pieces in place to seek revenge against his dad. Absalom is insinuating, hey, the king is too busy to hear your complaints. He doesn't care, but look, I'm here and I care. He's saying that if only I were the judge, if only I were able to make sure things would happen, I'd take care of you. I'm Absalom. I'm your buddy. But notice what happens in verse 5. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take a hold of him, and kiss him. Hey, you're my friend. You don't need to bow down. No, no, no. Get up. Stand up. Stand up. Let me give you a hug and a smooch. He's schmoozing them. He's a politician. He's playing on their emotions. He's manipulating them. He is buying followers. He's trying to get them to love him. He wants their affection. 
Verse 6, Absalom behaved in this way toward all of the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole their hearts. He stole the hearts of the people. He's working the crowd. Absalom is more focused, more concerned on building the kingdom of self instead of the kingdom of God. He wants to be king. This, this is a guy who wants everybody to love him. He's hoping at the end of the day, they're going to go, man, this guy Absalom is awesome. I mean, the other guy, we never even see that other guy. But this guy, he cares. This guy listens. This guy wants to help us. He's playing the long game. So what do you do when you've been hurt? What do you do when you've been wronged? You can seek revenge or you can choose an attitude of forgiveness. But the second thing you can do is you can choose humility over pride. Absalom is extremely prideful and arrogant. He is just looking out for him and he's working on building his own kingdom, the kingdom of self. Stuart Scott has a small booklet called Pride and Humility. And in that booklet, he lists out 30 manifestations of pride. I won't go through all 30 of those, but I'll list six of them. Complaining against or passing judgment on God. A lack of gratitude. Anger. Being focused on the lack of your gifts and abilities. Perfectionism. Talking too much or talking too much about yourself. Any of those resonate with you? Pride is in all of us. Every single time we sin, pride is at the root. Do you tend to get angry? Do you have a lack of gratitude? Do you think you know better than God? Do you focus on the lack of what you have, the lack of gifts, the lack of abilities? Absalom was a man who was filled with pride and hurt. Look at verse 6. Absalom behaved in this way because he wanted to steal the hearts of the people. He was looking after him, going after himself. I want your affection. I want your love. I want you to think I am great. Look at my chariot and my horses and my entourage, and I'll take care of all of your problems. But if we're going to really deal with pride. We've got to put pride off, but we've also got to put humility on. Here's what humility looks like. Recognizing and trusting God's character. Is God, in fact, good? Is he loving? Seeing yourself as having no right to question or judge an almighty and perfect God. Focusing on Christ. Biblical praying and a great deal of it. Being overwhelmed with God's undeserved grace and goodness. I'm not saying we should do nothing, but in the midst of hurt, pain, and betrayal, we can either seek revenge or we can cultivate an attitude of forgiveness or we can be really prideful and arrogant or we can put off pride and put on humility. And so we have to put off those things, but look at what happens next. 
You see, David finds out about the affections going over to Israel and Israel, the people of Israel, loving and following Absalom. David finds out about all of that, and he wonders. He begins to get a little nervous. He's scared because Absalom wants to be king. And out of that fear, David takes a few of his officials, and they run away. They flee. And so they are on the run because David knows that if it's between him and Absalom, Absalom is going to kill him. It's a monarchy. So in order for Absalom to become king, David has to die. David runs away. Then take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 20. Absalom said to Ahithophel, give us your advice. What should we do? Ahithophel is one of the smartest guys, and he used to be a counselor for David. Ahithophel is also Bathsheba's grandfather, gave counsel, was part of that inner circle to David. Now he's flipped sides, and Absalom is saying, okay, you're really smart. You're a wise counselor. Tell me what to do. Verse 21, Ahithophel answered, sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father, and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in sight of all of Israel. This man was a part of David's key counsel. Gives him really bad advice, but also, I wouldn't say good advice, it's pragmatic. It's bad advice because it's, it's crude, it's cruel, it's immoral. But the advice was, if you do this, everybody will see it. If you do this, everybody will recognize you are throwing a coup. You are overthrowing the kingdom. If you do this, everybody will see you as the leader. Everybody will see you as the man. So do this. It'll work. It'll get their attention. Absalom, being the crude, immoral person he is, does just that. It's interesting because he actually becomes the very man he detested at the beginning. He has become Amnon, crude, immoral, evil, wicked. How did he get there? What was that pathway? When I was in college, I did a wilderness trip on the Appalachian Trail where we hiked for a week. Started in Tennessee and moved into Virginia. And every day we would hike 10 to 12 miles. And I remember on the trail there were different markers. There were these white painted markers to let you know that you're still on the path. You haven't gotten lost, okay? You're, you're making progress. Um, every now and then you'd find two markers that would be staggered like this to let you know there's a, a right turn or a left turn coming up. Uh, there'd be blue markers to let you know that there's water. There'd be a marker letting you know, hey, there's a shelter up front. And so if you saw a shelter or you saw water, those are great places to camp out at, right? You want to camp by water because you can cook your breakfast. You can get dinner ready. You can wash things, right? Water is a great source when you're out in the middle of the woods. And so I remember one particular day, there's a guy named Brian. He's leading that day. And every day we'd, we'd change leaders. And Brian is leading at an extremely fast pace. And we're making really good time as a group. And we're actually scheduled to get into camp ahead of time. And so 
There's only one problem. As we're hiking, we realize that the sun is starting to go down. It's starting to get a little dark, and we're wondering, like, what happened? Did we get lost? Are we bad hikers? Are we actually slower than we thought? Did we take a, a wrong turn? Did we miss something? What happened? We realized that we weren't paying attention to the markers on the path. We realized that we had overshot our destination. We went too far, and now we had a decision to make. Do we turn around and go south, back where we came from, towards our hopeful destination where we wanted to camp out, or do we pick a direction and go north and just keep going and hopefully find water and hopefully find a campsite? See, your direction determines your destination. Andy Stanley says this, direction, not intention, determines destination. And so Brian had great intentions. We had all great intentions. We were moving quickly. We were making a good pace. We were covering a lot of ground, but we didn't pay attention to the markers. We didn't pay attention to the direction we were going. And we went too far. We overshot. How do you get on this path of destruction? Don't pay attention to the markers. Choose a, a different direction. Absalom chose a direction that led to destruction. David went down that same path. Saul went down that same path. So here's the question. Are you on the path to destruction? If so, how do you change? Romans 12 says this. Romans 12, 14 through 21. I kind of condensed it a little bit. What do you do when you've been hurt? What do you do when you've been wronged or sinned against or betrayed? Paul says this, bless those who persecute you. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. What? You're saying the person who hurt me, who took advantage of me, who betrayed me, if they're hungry, I should feed them? If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. You want to get them back? Entrust revenge to the Lord. You want to get them back? The person who is annoying you, bothering you, being a pain in the neck, this week, bless them. This week, overcome evil. Overcome evil with good. And so he says here, there's really four markers to know that you're on the path. It starts with blessing those who persecute you. The boss who speaks harshly to you, bless them. This week, look for an opportunity to bless them, to pray for them. If possible, live at peace with everyone. Cultivate an attitude, a readiness of forgiveness. Let God avenge your enemy. If someone has harmed you, mistreated you, betrayed you, it feels good to get them back. It feels good to pay them back. It feels good to put them in that emotional penalty box. But let God avenge them. Let God take care of that. I'm not saying do nothing, but God will judge them. Overcome evil with good. This week, look for opportunities to overcome evil with good. 
sounds counterculture, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like that's a good plan, but it's God's plan. It's the pathway to change. Direction determines our destination. And so in scripture, we see that we ought to choose forgiveness over revenge. We ought ought to choose humility over pride. But last, we ought to choose what's right over what works. Choose what's right. Make the right decision over what is pragmatic. Israel was a nation whose king was supposed to be God. God was supposed to be their king, but they wanted a king like all the other nations. So God gave them Saul. That didn't work out. That collapsed. God anointed David, a young man, a great warrior, had a heart after God. He chose sin, and the consequences of his life cascaded all through the kingdom and his family And now Absalom has raised up to overthrow the kingdom. All the meanwhile, God was supposed to be their king. It's amazing. The only true king is Jesus. Jesus is the only king. And there is no substitute for King Jesus. He's the king of love, the king of the universe, the creator of everything who came and died on the cross and paid for all of our sins so that you and I could find forgiveness. Saul, David, Absalom, the rest of these kings, they can't make atonement. They can't pay for sin, but King Jesus could. So here's the question. Who's your king? Who are you striving to live for? The kingdom of self or the kingdom of God? The king of love gave up his life and he desires you. He desires to be the king of your life. He desires you to follow him. So, the king of love has made it possible for us to live our lives for him. Let me pray. God in heaven, you are amazing and we hear what happened in the life of Saul David and Absalom and these stories are filled with lessons but also point to your grace and your goodness and we recognize that you you are the king of the entire universe and we love you we worship you ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on the king. Pray all this in Christ's name.